Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of One Roof, Many Stories. In this episode, we will explore the intersections of LGBTQ plus identities, transitional age youth status, and houselessness. We hope to understand how government systems and local organizations interact with LGBTQ plus individuals experiencing homelessness and how these interactions may aid in or hinder their journey toward housing security. All right, so let's get started with introductions. Uh, I'll go first. So hello, my name is Uwala. Um, I am on the Bruins Shelter Podcast Committee, and my pronouns are she, her, hers. Hi, everyone. My name is Jeremy. I use he, him, his pronouns, and I'm also on Bruins Shelter's Podcast Committee. And then Dr. Wilson, however you'd like to introduce yourself. Hey, great. Happy to join you all today. Uh, my name is Bianca Wilson. I'm a senior researcher at the Williams Institute, which is um, uh, like an interdisciplinary research center here on campus. Uh, we're in the law school, but we're a collection of psychologists and lawyers and demographers and, um, and we all focus, but we all focus on LGBT research in the interest of informing public policy. Awesome. Thank you for that. Um, so just to get us started, could you tell us broadly what work you do um, specifically in relation to transitional age youth and LGBTQ plus individuals um, in the past, currently, or what you hope to do in the future? You know, I'm a researcher, psychologist um, by training. And so the way I see myself as like working on behalf of LGBTQ youth and young adults, and I mean, people generally, but in this case, we're talking about youth, is really conducting studies and conducting studies on um, experiences that highlight, I mean, conducting studies that highlight folks' experiences and needs and concerns, um, trying to understand factors that impact inequities um, understand the role of culture and oppression in the lives of LGBTQ youth. And so, you know, I really see this as information, information and data help to promote social change and they help to promote dialogue. And so that's really like where I see myself in that, you know, in that movement on, on that side of it. So um, in areas of research, I do that mainly in areas of foster youth, youth incarceration, homelessness, um, and also sexual health. Awesome, thank you for sharing. Um, that was really informative. Um, so just to get started on a specific topic, could you please explain how the foster care system and existing government systems fail LGBT plus youth? Yeah, so, I mean, we're gonna jump right into it. How do they fail them? So, <laughs> uh, you know, when I think of that, I first, I mean, I think it's, it's first important to acknowledge the work of groups like the Center for the Study of Social Policy, who are really actually extending the even earlier work of scholars and activists like Dorothy Roberts, who have highlighted the way intergenerational and structural racism have 
shape the way child welfare systems operate. And so, um, you know, that is part of like, I think actually a reinvigorated movement right now where folks are really focusing on how do we understand this disproportional representation of particularly black and American Indian children in child welfare systems. And depending on the state, sometimes also Latinx kids are overrepresented. And so I, I raise that up because, you know, the same groups that are working on that are also starting to include thinking of LGBTQ youth as part of that framework, because most of the LGBTQ youth we're talking about in those systems are also youth of color. So it's, we can't really, you know, separate that, um, those issues there when thinking about queer youth. So, you know, I mean, more directly, like my work shows that um, LGBTQ youth in a, a study that we did of youth in the Los Angeles foster care system. So we talked to, we, we interviewed youth directly, um, almost 800 youth and about 120, 150 of them were LGBTQ, which amounted to about 20%, which is shows something's going on. They're overrepresented in the system. Um, but a lot of them talked about feeling that they were treated less well by child welfare workers. And so, I mean, we've learned a lot of other things, but I'd say that's one thing that we learned that's really direct to your question about, you know, how are they being failed? Is it they were telling us? We don't feel like we're treated as well. Could you sort of uh, expand on like what their mistreatment was? Like what were they experiencing? Yeah, I actually feel like that's where we have a, a gap in what we we know um, on the research side. So it was a like a survey. So the question was basically, how do you feel you're treated? And here what we were trying to do was, you know, have data that administrators would listen to. And we were comparing straight cis youth with LGBTQ youth. And so there we saw the LGBTQ youth were more likely to report that they were treated poorly. We don't have information on, you know, what does that mistreatment look like in, in that study. Now, you know, there are other researchers, I've, you know, definitely read their work where they do show, you know, queer youth are reporting staff, you know, demeaning them for being, you know, for their gender expression, um, demeaning them and, and you know, they felt like they're treated like predators for having same-sex attraction. So there are studies that show youth talking about that as some of the kind of treatment. Um, but in our study, we were really kind of looking at the, like, the rates of mistreatment. And that was an important starting point for administrators to pay attention to. Thank you for that. So I was just a little bit curious about how did they kind of get there in the first place, in particular, like queer youth and maybe queer youth of color? Um, do you think it, or have you seen it as like a um, lack of family support, or are there other conditions that you see that are similar to those youth that um, into experiencing homelessness? Yeah, so that's, uh, you know, that's interesting. So, I mean, I think, I do think we're probably talking about slightly two different pathways between how queer youth end up overrepresented in homelessness and how they end up overrepresented in child welfare. I think there's some similarities probably there and some differences. And so I'll just say up front, 
I also think that some of our researchers need to spend more time understanding is what do those pathways look like? But with what we do know, for example, is, so we know that our research showed that LGBTQ youth were more likely to experience, um, LGBTQ youth in foster care were also more likely to have experienced homelessness. You know, although we don't know exactly why that connection is there, we do know that in, you know, other folks' research have shown why do foster youth in general, why are they more likely to end up experiencing homelessness? And from that, we know that there's factors like if they keep getting moved in terms of their placements, right? So if you end up, if you're a kid in foster care and you end up from one group home to a residential facility, to a, you know, a foster home for a little bit, and then they say no, and you know, you end up in another home, that kind of movement is a risk factor for ending up experiencing homelessness or housing instability later when you're out of foster care. Um, we know that just aging out of care, meaning you never end up with a permanent placement or home, is a risk factor in general for foster youth ending up homeless. We also know if um, youth have like dual supervision, meaning they also um, are under the, you know, kind of the, the watch of probation or they've been incarcerated. That's a risk factor for ending up experiencing homelessness. And also having mental health issues or, or having been diagnosed with depression or emotional concerns. So those are all ways that foster youth in general end up being more likely to experience homelessness. Well, guess what? LGBTQ youth in foster care experience all those things at higher rates. So it is likely that that is one of those pathways that we see those connections between foster care and homelessness. Um, but what we also don't know in terms of LGBTQ youth and how that percent gets so high is that, and this is why I bring up and kind of started the conversation talking about structural racism, is that we know that a lot of the LGBTQ youth in the system ended up in foster care when they were very young, like all children. And that, you know, most children are placed in the out-of-home care as babies and toddlers under five. So that's pre-LGBTQ status. So part of the answer for understanding how LGBTQ youth are also heavily in the system um, of child welfare means also looking at how Black and Brown and American Indian children in general are overrepresented in the child welfare system. And then understanding, well, maybe it's also about why are LGBTQ kids not getting out? <laughs> which it has to do with treatment within the system. But the starting place probably looks a little bit just like all the other brown, American Indian and black kids. So we do need more research there, but I think what we do know is, is pointing in that direction, if that makes sense. <laughs> yes, it does. And then do you mind explaining if you can uh, why LGBT youth experience more of these like mental health symptoms um, and some of the other issues you were talking about like within foster care, like incarceration and whatnot? Yeah, so, I mean, what we know about all those factors just among youth in general is that they're so interdependent. I mean, if you're experiencing moving around from home to home and not even feeling like each of those is really a home, it's like placement to placement that alone is also going to impact mental health concerns. If LGBTQ youth who are, you know, have been reporting um, 
experiences a poor treatment from the actual child welfare workers in the system. That makes sense that that might impact mental health issues. So it's like even those factors that impact, that affect all these later consequences like homelessness and issues with education um, and just general like transition into adulthood, um, they're also impacting each other. And, you know, so, I mean, that's, that would be my, you know, thinking about what we see again among youth in general, and that it's just impacting LGBTQ youth even more. And the fact that queer youth are reporting this poor treatment suggests that there's, you know, issues of discrimination and minority stress that they're experiencing in the system. And when we say minority stress, we're kind of saying, like when you talk about discrimination and prejudice, there's ways it impacts us directly, right? Like if, if, a, if a home, if a potential foster parent um, doesn't want a queer kid in their home, you know, that impacts you directly, meaning you're not gonna get that placement, you're not gonna get a permanent home. But minority stress also looks at how the impact of knowing that you experienced that impacts you psychologically and that that has an impact on your everyday as well. And so it's it's both of those ways that that kind of bias impacts kids and adults too. Thank you for that overview. Um, I know you've been speaking a lot about how either staff can mistreat um, these youth or even just the people who are housing them as well. Um, but are there any like legal or institutional policies that also come to mind that really influence LGBTQ plus youth and their experience with houselessness? Yeah, I mean, um, in terms of policies that we should continue to look out for, well, so here in California, we do have a law that allows youth to um, be housed, and that's in, in several systems, um, juvenile facilities, residential facilities, and child welfare, um, as well as services, to be housed in accordance with their current gender identity. But that's not common throughout the United States. And we also know that just last year, the you know, Department of Housing and Urban Development had, was trying to create this federal level rule um, giving shelters, home, you know, shelters for those who are unhoused, um, even more leeway for making decisions about who they felt belonged in their shelter because of gender expression and gender identity. Basically would have come, you know, really put trans and other gender non-conforming folks at high risk for not being able to seek shelter there. So policies like those are ones that we should all be watching out for. I mean, we can hope with the current administration <laughs> um, that that is not a rule that they will continue to pursue. But I do think that's the kind of issue that's gonna keep coming back when we have changes of administrations or in states that um, are not affirming to LGBTQ youth in those systems we have to look out for those kind of policies for sure. Great, um, thank you for those suggestions. Uh, just to, on the more micro level, um, is there anything like Department of Child Family Services and like the people working within that institution 
can do to like make uh, like the welfare system more friendly for LGBT youth on like an interactional level? Hmm. Well, um, I mean, I'll say, I mean, I'm, I'm not a clinician, so I definitely don't speak to, you know, kind of this like everyday practice component. So I just want to be fair to that. But a few years ago, a colleague of mine, Kush Cooper and I did an assessment of all the programs in, the, in LA County in terms of how they were prepared or how they um, attempted to understand how to work with LGBTQ youth. So this meant the Child Welfare Department, DCFS, but it also meant the library system, the Sheriff's Department. So all the, the 12 main departments that exist in the county, um, Health and Human Services. And, you know, we found, um, you know, so we did interviews and surveys and, you know, something that really stood out was how much folks talked about trainings and, and the limitations of trainings that, as a whole system, we need to be rethinking this idea that like your LGBT 101, where you just learn like some words, like this is what gay means this is, hey, everyone, this is what pansexual means. It's a new term for you. Um, that that only goes so far. And that people really needed, you know, staff needed more support and assistance in understanding how to translate those types of basic knowledge trainings, which are really common into practice. And they needed support that was ongoing. And um, one thing that was great to see is after, you know, we completed that project and that report that the county actually did create an equity office. So that's something that they are working on to really try to, um, and, and there's a DCFS LGBT um, organizing unit as well. And you know there had been before, but now there's a lot more support for that. It's like not just a collective, but an actual office. Um, and so I think that's great to see is you know ways that again that like data information are informing practice, but practice through creating these like structural supports. You know, because I mean the the actual child welfare workers they're the ones who are going to tell you. Like what is, you know, what does good practice look like? Um, my work really informs and what I hope to inform how I measure whether or not I'm doing a good job is, am I helping folks to realize that they need to create systems to support that practice? Awesome, thank you for that. Um, and I know you've done a great job at highlighting the role of like race and other compounding factors that these youth experience. Um, so could you expand on like why an intersectional perspective like this is necessary in understanding these types of issues? Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it makes common sense that we would expect that if you belong to multiple oppressed groups that many queer foster youth of color, um, which they do, that that's going to impact them in their day to day. And, um, but I think the specific way that I tend to think about the role of intersectionality in the system goes back to a little bit what we were talking about before. And that's in thinking about this interplay between the root causes of 
how we end up having LGBTQ kids in foster care and then what's the cause for why they're not getting permanently placed and getting out and the way that different forms of oppression are probably operating at those two endpoints. So, you know, as we were saying, like if, if we know that youth are disproportionately black and American Indian um, and depending on the state Latinx and they're entering foster care um, and entering housing instability as children before LGBT status was known, then we really need to be talking about the role of structural racism and other issues in impacting that starting point. And, um, you know, related to housing, a current study we did on LGBT poverty, LGBT adults experiencing poverty, three quarters of the people in our study talked about being poor as children. You know, so again, like really highlighting that childhood poverty and economic instability of neighborhoods under surveillance of child welfare systems and child protective services is a place that we really need to start when we're talking about later experiences with both child welfare and housing instability. And that we and and that that's part of an intersectional approach that it's not just about this compounded you're queer and black right now and that's hurting you but rather thinking about the ways structural oppressions might be affecting your current outcomes but in different ways at different time points because then we do know that once folks are in those systems so once whatever is is at that root cause for how they end up homeless, how they end up in foster care or other forms of housing instability or economic instability. We do know once they're there that they're experiencing anti-LGBT bias in the shelters, in um, when they go for social services, um, when, you know, dealing with social workers in foster care and foster parents. So it's an interplay between all those forms of um, prejudice and, and structural oppression. As a quick follow-up to that, um, mm -hmm. I know some of your past research kind of highlights how different types of ethnic groups or just like cultural groups respond to um, just like LGBTQ identities. Um, could you talk a little bit more about what you found through that research? So when we say that again, so we're, we're thinking about um, uh, kind of people's personal identities or? Yeah, um, and how that might impact like their response to their kids being um, either like two-spirit identifying or like LGBTQ plus mm -hmm. um, or just non-heteronormative identities. Right. Yeah, I mean, we definitely, um, you know, the the concept and issue of family rejection and conflict around LGBT status is, is still a major issue. I mean, we were, uh, I'm part of a group of researchers that did a, um, a really large scale qualitative study of LGBT adults, but that included really young adults, like 18 to 25 um, also. And you know, many people would think in this like historical cultural 
context that, you know, the youth are fine and all their parents are fine with who they are. And, you know, all this, we've, we've, we've progressed. Well, that may be for some youth for sure. Like we have those youth on one spectrum, but we also saw in our looking at those data in terms of the way parents respond to, to people coming out, even among those younger respondents that they're also all still getting thrown out their house. They're getting rejected. They're told they're not natural, that it's against the religion, um, that, you know, we really are operating in these two worlds of parental responses to LGBT status across a lot of different ethnicities. Um, and, you know, there's no evidence to suggest that families of color say reject in a harsher way than white families. Often that's somehow gets part of the narrative. Um, however, we do know that because racial like identity and connection to community for API folks, for black folks, for Latinx folks is so important to how we all navigate our day-to-day -day <laughs> in the rest of the world that that rejection has additional significance to losing that connection. So I think that's an important distinction to make that, you know, there isn't evidence that black and brown families are more likely to throw their kids into the street because they're LGBT more so than white folks. Um, but it does happen across all groups and the significance of the loss of community and family when you're then trying to also navigate white supremacy is, um, can be really, you know, exacerbating for, for folks of color. Thank you for that insight. I was really informative to learn. Um, just to follow up with that question, do you think that like this uh, sort of pathway of family rejection leads into foster care or does it lead to youth more being um, like on the streets or like living in shelters? Like what do they go um, after like their family rejects them? Yeah, I think that's a great question and one that we do need to understand more. So like it was notable to me that in a recent study similar to what we did in LA that some folks did in New York City um, just last year, I think, they did find that LGBTQ youth were more, more likely to have entered the system older than non-LGBTQ people. So what that means is while most of all the kids still come into the system before five, before they're before they're queer or no before they know <laughs> um, that LGBTQ youth are still more likely to be coming in at a time where there can be family conflict around LGBT status. Now, when we talk about it though as a pathway into foster care, I think we have to be careful. Like clearly, there must already be some concerns or issues around how that family conflict is handled for you to end up a dependent of the state, right? The state child protective services does not go and identify if 
a family's, you know, is not accepting of their kids' queer status, you don't have your rights as a parent taken away from you. So it's right that alone. Otherwise, a lot more people <laughs> would end up in foster care. So not having conflict around a youth's gender identity alone is not a way that you end up in foster care. So that is not as direct of a path. However, if there is concern around abuse related to that conflict, that is a pathway into foster care. So that's why I, I think that's an important distinction again to me, which is different than the way adolescent queer youth end up unhoused because that is a more direct pathway that if you have any kind of conflict, whether it's considered, whether it rises to the level of abuse in the way child protective services would define it, kids end up on the street at their friends' homes, right? They begin like a path of couch surfing. Um, and so I, I think that is one of those places that I mentioned earlier that I think the pathways into foster care for say LGBTQ adolescents looks different than the pathway in to homelessness. Because it, you know, it doesn't, into homelessness does not require some determination by the state that your home is unsafe. In fact, it's usually the youth realizing this home is unsafe for me, or parents, you know, kicking them out and making it unsafe. Um, just to follow up on the determination part, so if a child is experiencing houselessness after being kicked out, does their school somehow um, like notice and then put them into foster care? Or is it only like people whose like family has been flagged for like other like deficits that are put into foster care? Like, I'm very, um, it's very unclear how like they flag families down and like the points of intervention into foster care. Yeah, well, I think that would be a great question maybe for both of us for, for a, like a, um, a front end social worker. Uh, I think they'd give us a little more insight about that. But what we do know is that plenty of youth who experience homelessness um, or housing instability are in schools and schools do not inherently make that a call to CPS or if that call happens, it might be to try to get the kid reunited, but not, the fact that the kid is unhoused may not necessarily make a, um, a determination of like severing parental rights or, or re official removal from the home. But yeah, I think we should follow up with that. That's a question I've had as well, but from what I understand, it requires a lot more for CPS to have made that determination than just simply children are unhoused. Because again, a lot of children are unhoused with their families, right? Most, a lot of childhood homelessness is still within families. It's not all completely separate. It's housing instability that whole families are experiencing. I know we've focused a lot of our conversations so far on like what the experiences of LGBTQ plus individuals, for example, look like in the US. But I know that you also have some experience of research in other countries or in the international sector. 
Um, are there any like similarities or differences that you think are important to note to that end? Yeah, well, I've, I've done um, a few projects with colleagues who have been working actually for a long time in Western Kenya and now also participate as a board member for uh, like a LBQ women's like feminist forum um, out of Western Kenya. So that includes Nairobi and Kisumu um, and some other localities. And I'd say some similarities that I see there are um, include concerns around economic security and you know the impact of um, discrimination in the workplace, particularly for masculine identifying and presenting women. And so, you know, the work in Kenya that I did was primarily all on women's um, issues there, like queer women. And, um, and, and there, there's a little, there was a little more flexibility, like if folks were trans identified, but still also connected to women's communities, they were also part of that work. But um, meaning trans masculine identified but still connected to some of the women's and queer women's work there. Um, and, you know, so the issue of economic security, the role of like gender expression and masculine presenting related bias and risk to violence came up. So I'd say those are some of the biggest similarities that I saw there. Obviously the racial dynamic is quite different because it's an all black country <laughs> with um, you know, not to say that there aren't any tensions around ethnicities present, but it's not the same as here in the U.S. context. Do you know if there's like a housing insecurity uh, sort of like issue that intersects with um, LGBT status in Kenya as well, especially for um, these women that you were referring to? You know, housing instability, like the idea of actually having nowhere to go is not something that came up in the way that we talk about it here. So I'm not saying it's not at all an issue and maybe I need to, I think I'll ask my colleagues, like that's something we should put as part of the next project to examine. But when they talked about economic issues in both our survey and the qualitative, like the focus groups that we did, it was about having jobs and money for food, for feminine hygiene supplies, um, which were scarce regardless of whether you had the money for them. They were just difficult to get, but it was about the money needed, not talking about knowing folks who just had no, nobody's home to be in. And, you know, that, you know, for those who, who study homelessness as just a phenomenon, generally know that the U.S. has a very unique situation of being so highly industrialized and have such severe rates of homelessness and people not being housed. So I think there's something to look at there about the national cultural context for how being unhoused looks like from one country to another. But I definitely wouldn't consider myself an expert on international homelessness. Um, but I, I do think there's something there to understand about why that didn't come up. In, in the same way when I did interviews with women here in, in the U.S. Yeah, thank you for that juxtaposition. It kind of offers some perspective to me at least. Um, so I was just kind of curious if you'd be willing to speak on any of the work that you're doing currently or that you hope to do in the near future. 
Let's see. So my work currently, I'm finishing up a big report on LBQ women and inclusive of trans and cis women. Um, so basically it's about, you know, what are the, um, what are the, what, what's the data look like? The survey data, the national, like big national data. What does that look like for cis and trans women who identify as lesbian and bisexual? What do those data look like um, in terms of economics? So including um, housing instability, poverty rates, employment, education, and then a whole bunch of health indicators um, looking at, you know, kind of a review of also what we know about criminalization and, and child welfare. So just trying to bring together one place that talks about um, Q women's experiences in ways that don't like separate trans and cis women. So I provide the data separately, but the, the point is that it's an overall women's report. And then, um, you know, I'm also doing some work with folks like Ayako Miyashita, who's in social work. And um, I don't know, might've been how, ho hopefully you've connected with her. She's, she's great here on campus um, and is doing a project with um, sex workers in LA and understanding like vulnerabilities to police surveillance. That's a project I'm excited to be a part of and um, continuing to try to understand more uh, about LGBT poverty, looking at the data that we collected over the last several years. So those are some of the things I'll continue working on. Nice. That sounds super cool. Um, I love all the intersectional work with like poverty and gender and sexual identity. Um, that makes me very excited and I really appreciate the work you're doing. Thank you. <laughs> right uh, and so her last question is, what can we do as like the average everyday person and maybe the pre-academics mm -hmm. uh, to advocate for LGBT plus youth experiencing homelessness? I'll say, is this an everyday thing? Uh, you know, not surprising again, as a researcher, I tend to think about data and the power of data. So what I would ask is for all of us, you know, to really be aware of opportunities where we can promote that information about sexual orientation and gender identity and gender expression, because we do think that that's probably just independently important, regardless of whether you identify as LGBT, gender expression likely matters in a lot of contexts. So, you know, look for opportunities where we can advocate that we're collecting that information, of course, in ways that is, in ways that are respectful and confidential as much as possible of um, and, and protective for folks who might, you know, still be at risk to the bias that is real out there <laughs> around LGBT status, but we need those data. So we need those data in all these systems. Like if we talk about, we know LGBTQ youth are, you know, more likely to be not treated as well in child welfare systems. Well, how do we know we've done a better job with initiatives in three years, if we're not tracking whether or not they're in the system at the same rate, whether or not they continue to show the mental health disparities. Like if we don't have those data, then figuring that out becomes like one one-off study after another. And that's not functional long-term. 
this needs to be more administrative. And so, you know, that's what I would suggest is to look for opportunities where that information can be useful. And, you know, we probably have to have conversations about how to think about those data as useful for social change, but not necessarily about the key to feeling heard and, and represented. So by that, meaning, you know, when we collect those information in ways that make it useful for data and to inform action and policy, it may not be that every label you want represented is there. It's not all about like, is the exact way that I wanna talk about myself, is that on every survey? Because that's not always the point. The point is to get good enough data to be able to say something about larger groups and know that we're making a change for them or to realize that we're not and that we need to track it. So that's what I think of um, as part of the everyday way that we can, <laughs> that we can help that I'd like folks to get on that bandwagon. Okay, um, well, we at Bruin Shelter just wanna thank you so much for being here, um, but just wanted to offer you the space if you have any closing remarks for our listeners. No, I think that's it. I mean, this was an honor to join you all. I'm really glad that you're having these kind of conversations. I look forward to hearing how other folks, you know, address these similar questions. And um, this is great that you're doing this.